At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of the Rise Together podcast. I have a treat for all of you. There is a guy who, man, has blessed our team. He came here for a fireside chat not terribly long ago. His name's Scott Miller. He is the executive vice president of thought leadership at Franklin Covey. And he just, man, gave us some amazing tools on leadership out of his latest book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. And as we have stayed in touch, he spoke on the Rise business stage. We've just we've been in community. And, and I was looking through some of what he's created. We realized, man, there's so much application to the tools that they are working on inside of Franklin Covey and ultimately his book that just totally translate to the relationship space that it'd be crazy for us to not have him jump in here and be part of a conversation about how to pursue an exceptional relationship. Scott has previously been the head of business development and the chief marketing officer over at Franklin Covey. If that sounds familiar, by the way, there was a book that uh, Covey, Stephen Covey, wrote called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It sold 30 million copies since it was released in 1989. So Franklin Covey's a world leader in consulting and training. They just help people and organizations achieve results. And he's been a part of their team for two and a half decades He's a good dude, runs a cool podcast that Rachel has been a guest on and that I'm going to jump on here in two seconds called On Leadership, uh, Franklin Covey's On Leadership. Please welcome Scott Miller to the Rise Together podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things, this is Rise Together. Well, can I ask real quick, because on your book, there are three names. It's Scott Jeffrey Miller. And I am uh, nervous when I see that sometimes people are referred to in three-name form to only recognize two names. Is there a formality? Like, if I go with the Scott Jeffrey, does that mean that we've gotten serious? It just means you're Catholic, because Catholics <laughs> tend to give their kids lots of names. <laughs> Good work. So That's it. Fair you enough. Know, actually, Dave, the reason I use my middle name is because, like you, you know, I spent um, many years at the Disney company, and when our mail would come around, there was like seven Scott Millers in the division. That's real. So because it was such a common name, I was always getting people's reimbursement checks or whatever it was, so I've always used my middle name because it's a fairly common name. You know what? By the way, genius and why not? You know what? You are uniquely you. You might as well be known as the only Scott Jeffrey Miller that I've ever been introduced to. So here's like if there is any familiarity at all in having said Scott's name out loud, if you've previously tuned in to the Rise podcast, you may in fact recognize that, yep, we had Scott here at the office of the Hollis Co. He was generous in spending some time with our team doing a fireside chat. It wasn't really that close to the fireplace. I'm going to be honest, but it was uh, what we'd call a fireside chat. And Rachel had a conversation with you 
just as your book was in the midst of being released, I don't even know that it was out yet, but Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow was like, it was, you were in, you were launch mode. And so we said, hey, come on in, let's have a conversation because inevitably these are things that we want to try and learn from. And man, it was so well received here and it turned itself into this Rise podcast. And then after the fact, we were having conversation about the application of almost every single one of these principles to relationship that we thought it a crime to not have you come here and talk just a little bit about some of what's inside of this book, but through the lens of how, if people are willing and interested, they might apply it to their personal relationship. I mean, business and relationship, they kind of go hand in hand anyway, yeah? Well, absolutely. I mean, first, my launch mode pales in comparison to the launch mode that um, get out of your own way is in right now. So uh, but I, you're kind of like that political candidate that declares their race and they raise like so much money from supporters that nobody else runs against them. It, 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 only a fool would go up against your book coming out, Dave. So congrats so on ki- setting the bar for that. You're so kind. But you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, relationships is everyone's most valuable asset, probably next to your soul or your reputation, right? I mean, relationships are all that matters in your family, in the workplace, in your community, in every part of your life. It's it's they're this central part of really living your mission. So in, in the way that you deconstruct your book and the advice that you're giving to leaders, I'm going to try and just take some of these pieces where I think, man, there is some real application for the listeners here who are interested in an exceptional relationship. I'm going to throw out a topic, and then let's just turn it into a conversation like we're sitting around having dinner together. I, in my book, have a, a chapter that is a lie that being right all the time doesn't make me an ass, which, of course, I know that to be a complete and total lie. The first challenge inside of your book is this uh, challenge to demonstrate humility. And I love this quote that comes from Dr. Covey that humble leaders, or we're just going to say here people, are more concerned with what is right than being right. So how does humility or this like pursuit of demonstrating humility translate for people who are interested in pursuing an exceptional relationship with their partner? Well, there's a reason why I numbered this the first of these 30 challenges. Like you said, the tagline of the book is 30 challenges to become the leader you would follow. It could have easily said 30 challenges to become the parent or friend or neighbor or committee member or spouse, right? Or you name it. So humility doesn't come natural to me, Dave. I mean, maybe perhaps it does to you. My sense is you and I are probably fairly similar in that. I mean, I'm not a naturally humble person. Now, I think perhaps the opposite of humility is arrogance. I don't think I'm a naturally arrogant person. But you know what, to have achieved some level of professional success, it required a certain level of confidence and hubris. And I've always found having a little bit of a strong sense of, you know, maybe even overinflated self-esteem has served me in times of challenge. But humility comes from confidence. And that's something that I learned is that confident people are actually, can be humble people. Arrogant people are incapable of being humble. So if you look around in your relationships, look around in your, in your, in your perhaps, perhaps romantic relationships, how often do you have to be right? Do you have to be the smartest person in the room? I, I love this book by a, a mutual colleague of yours and mine, Liz Wiseman. She wrote the book Multipliers. She's a former uh, CHRO equivalent at Oracle. She wrote this famous, uh, really life professional changing book for me called Multipliers. And the premise of the book is that as a leader, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, your job is not to be the genius in the room or the genius in the kitchen, the genius at the dining room table, but your job is to be the genius maker of others. As a friend at Sunday brunch, your job is not to be the know-it-all or have your story top their story. Can you lift up, bring out, pollinate up the greatness, the genius that is in everyone else? And if you're a secure person, if you're willing to be not just confident but vulnerable, then naturally your humility, I think, will flow out. If you are confident in what you bring to the table, you don't have to be the smartest person at brunch. Yeah. you know, It's so interesting because what I have to go back to is – 
what does it say about me in the seasons, in the times when I'm triggered and feel threatened, where I have to demonstrate my rightness, where I want to overcompensate, where, and not even that I want to, but I feel some like primal need to. And it always ends up coming back to insecurity, the opposite of confidence, this like absence of me feeling comfortable in my skin with this person or people that I'm in community with. And man, if there was a way to undermine your interest in establishing something reputation-wise and establishing something in, in the trust that you'd create in this relationship, it's to do this thing that has us showing in our arrogance or in our want to try and make sure that they appreciate how much we know or how much we, that we actually do the opposite of, of getting the thing that we're aiming for. Uh, I've, I've stepped in it so many times and it's only an age that I'm finally able to see a little bit of it. And I have to still have this kind of a conversation as a reminder because both Rachel and I were strong people. And in her strength, sometimes I can find the strong position that she's taken, a trigger that has me wanting to be right at the expense of, you know, us actually being able to get through the evening. And, uh, you know, being right, is it's, it's sometimes about like winning or losing the battle in, in the preservation of actually being able to still be alive <laughs> at the end of the war, right? You know, Dave, I host a radio program on iHeartRadio called Great Life, Great Career. And I recently interviewed Gary Chapman, the author of the famous book, The Five Love Languages. And he said something that was prophetic. And perhaps it's a bit extreme, but he said, you can either be right or you can be in a relationship. And, I, and again, it might be a little extreme, but it kind of haunts me when I'm in, you know, conversation with my wife or my parents or my in-laws or just my friends how often do I have to be right? And why do I have to be right? And half the time, I'm not right, but I feel like they need to conquer because like you said, I'm feeling insecure about something going on in my own life, my finances, my parenting, my, you know, my career success. So I think the more vulnerable all of us can be in our relationships, the more we invite people in to feel better in our presence. Yeah. And that's, a great, that's a great question to ask yourself. When people are around you, do they feel better about themselves? Do you lift them up? Do you leave them better off than before they joined you for a cup of coffee or a round of golf or you know a ride on the horse, whatever it was? That's a great question to ask yourself. Are people better off around you when they leave you than were they before they joined you? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all right the second challenge is the challenge to think abundantly and it's interesting because i man can really identify with someone who especially in the midst of transition where we left uh, an identity and a security and a set of knowns for the pursuit of doing this work together, the beginnings of this journey had me saying yes to things in our business, uh, saying yes to things in my personal life that were very much 
on built on a foundation of a scarcity mindset, this worry of like there not being enough for everyone, or that if we didn't say yes, that the yeses wouldn't appear some distance in the future. And you know, talk about talk about the the importance of that difference, of abundance versus uh, scarcity, and how if you find yourself identifying in any way with a scarcity mindset, what that 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 belief holds you from. I think there is a natural daily gravitational pull, a societal pull, a marketplace pull towards scarcity. Right? I mean, competition is huge. Competition for likes or shares or books or fame or income or promotions or love or friendship. I mean, just kind of the way society is built, we're all in a bit of a comparison mode and competition mode. And, and we all know as leaders, those are pretty toxic forces. Dr. Covey popularized this idea in his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, this idea of having an abundance mindset or a scarcity, a scarce mindset. And I, I, you know, I'll use my wife as a great example. My wife is a very accomplished um, person. She's the mother of three children. She is a, a by choice, stay-at-home, full-time mom. My wife was raised in a very um, uh, prosperous economic family, very stable family. And for some reason, I don't know, my wife tends to have a little bit more of a scarce mindset than I have. I was raised in a similar family, but for some reason I tend to lean towards having a more abundant mindset. Doesn't mean she's selfish or self-centered, but she tends to have a bit of a mindset of um, she kind of needs to protect her own before she's comfortable moving towards abundance. And I think those who are like my wife, like I said, is very smart, very academically accomplished. There's something that's happened in her life earlier that's created some fear. And I think fear, which, which, which drives most of our behavior, right? Most of our lives are spent either running from or avoiding fear pretty much in every conversation, every relationship. Something happened with my wife, and I've talked to her about it, and she can't quite uncover it also. But I think people who are effective in their relationships, and I'm happy to get into that discussion around being efficient versus effective. I think it's the biggest learning I've had from Dr. Covey. People who move towards effectiveness really have this abundance mindset. They enter their negotiations, their conversations, their lunches, every interaction thinking, what is the win for the other person? What yeah. would make them happy? Yeah. What would make what would make them successful? Have I asked that? Do I know that? Am I guessing that? I think the biggest way to move out of a scarcity mindset into an abundance mindset is to figure out. What can I do to make this other person win and, and not lose as a result of that, right? We call it kind of win-win thinking. It's a cliche we hear a lot, but a lot of people have lose-win mindsets. A lot of people have win-lose mindsets. You know, the opposite of win-win is not lose-win. It's no deal. <laughs> yeah. And there are times when you just have to walk away to say, hey, neither of us can win how we need to, so let's just agree to no deal, and that's okay. Yeah. It, you know, it's interesting because I, I think of it like I try to simplify it for people that maybe struggle even like really. Well, what, what do you mean? What, what's scarcity? Like it, when it comes to the accomplishments of other people, just as like simply as I can state it, if you're a person who sees the accomplishments of other people and finds envy or jealousy in other people achieving things that you have not or that's that's more scarcity. Or if you're someone who sees those accomplishments and celebrates them and, oh, my goodness, it's so great. And in their achieving, find something that maybe motivates you to believe that now you can possibly do something that is more of an abundance mindset. And that the nuance, it's not that delicate. That's a pretty big difference. But one of them, to your point, like one's fear based. And the other's trust-based. One is believing that there's enough for everyone, and there's one that believes that there's only enough for you, and you got to hold on to your corner. If you don't, they're not. It, it just might not come back around. And the, I mean, like the headline for me is in the seasons where I felt the tug towards scarcity. Man, it was depleting of my energy. It was just a suck of energy. And the more that I've been able to really dive into a gratitude practice and really be like just a true believer that there is enough for all of us, I'm energized by it in a way that's just the complete opposite of what felt like a complete suck on every yeah. single bit of my, my being. 
And Dave, we've all been there, right? It's not like the person who's jealous of others is a bad person. We've all had that season in our career. We've all had that season in our relationship. It's not, it doesn't make you less enlightened. I think it helps to really understand when you're in that role of scarcity, whether it be with credit or resources or time or energy or, or recognition, step back and just ask yourself, why am I operating from a scarce mindset? Am I intimidated? Am I fearful? Am I scared? Am I jealous? Those are natural human emotions. There's a very natural, I, I, I'm jealous a couple times a day. I'm 51 years old, fairly accomplished. But so what can I learn from that? What am I feeling when I'm feeling this sort of jealousy or such? I, I don't think it's always a bad feeling to have because you get to know yourself a little bit better. And when you find yourself feeling that, then you know why and you can move out of it quicker to more, more abundant mindset. Yeah. What's interesting in like the context specifically of relationship is there have been for each of Rachel and I seasons of overwhelming victory, like holy cow she's crushing on a level I've never seen before. And there have previous to that been seasons where I was crushing on a level that had never been seen before. And we had to choose, and I do believe it's an active choice, to either compare where that seasonal uh, you know, ebb or flow was for us relative to them, or stand in a posture of cheerleading because, man, she's my best friend. I am proud of her. We are not competing. I am here in part to be an ambassador on behalf of the tools that she's creating. And if she's having a win, we're having a win. Yeah. But, but right, but like it's easier, it's certainly easier said than done. And they're absolutely for me and for anyone who has any, any humanity in their being, like there's gonna be times when your partner, is just having it like, especially if you see them and you're like, man, it feels like everything's kind of going their way during a season where it feels like things aren't going your way. It can be hard to force yourself into a posture of rooting for them when it feels like everything else is rooting against you. But you got to make that choice. I mean, like the alternative truly is that you get into this place of resentment comparison and it truly becomes a depleting thing that will completely limit your ability for an effective and, and, and exceptional relationship. You know, Dave, and I think your situation might be a little bit hard to relate to for the common person, right? Because not everybody's married to Dave Hollis or married to Rachel Hollis, right? I mean, look at my marriage. My marriage is a fairly traditional marriage. I'm actually almost 13 years older than my wife is. My wife is more academically accomplished than I am. When we got married, we made the decision together that she would be a full-time stay-at-home mom. Meanwhile, I'm out, you know, on a book tour and a podcast host and a radio host and speaking at Rise events, and she's home doing laundry. She's home grocery shopping and homework and, you know, tucking three boys in the bed, and that, that can only – that satisfaction can only take you so far. So I, as the professional spouse who gets these immediate accolades, right, how many likes I have on Facebook, I get this sort of – recognition that my wife does not get, right? Her recognition comes when she sees her son open the door for someone else or they, you know, graduate from high school. So I think it's even more complicated when you're in a partnership, a relationship where the seasons are different, right? I mean, I'm day trading. My wife's buying a home and sitting on it for 40 years. I mean, not, not literally day trading, but yeah. the rewards that come from my career are quite visceral. My wife is building adults, and that takes decades. So I have to be really mindful. And I, quite frankly, don't do a good enough job to not just do my share of, of the parenting and the homemaking, but also make sure that my wife genuinely feels valued by me and by our children from this mortgage that she's sitting on metaphorically for 30 years and then quote selling at a profit, you know, down the road. Yeah, no, honor the honor the like hardest work in the entire world. You know, that that is not it's funny because sometimes I'll make the mistake, anyone will make the mistake of saying like, oh, you know, this person works and this person stays at home. No, 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 no. Both people work. <laughs> one person happens to work in the home, one person happens to work out of the home, yeah, and yeah. the value that we're placing on one or the other, sometimes, uh, to, to your point, may be more recognized by something that is more visceral or of the world, but my goodness, uh, the way that I'm sure your boys 
uh, are polite and decent and good human beings as a reflection of the kind of work and effort that she's putting in. Good work. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast challenge three uh this is one no matter who you are if you applied only this challenge uh to your relationship it would just be better listen first right and 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 like as a person who were there a debate club that I could try out for, I would try out for it. And I would <laughs> successfully be accepted onto said debate team because I make the mistake that you are arguing that uh, anyone should not make, which is to formulate the response to someone's you know conversation while they're still talking, right? Like active listening is a skill that very few people have actually mastered. I think of all the 30 challenges, this is the one that has the largest, to your point, disproportionate positive, or if neglected, negative impact on your relationships. Uh, you and your wife invited me to speak kind of as a surprise at your Charleston Rise event. And I probably spent 15 of my 35, 40 minutes on stage talking about this because it's counterintuitive, is that in all of our relationships, professional and personal, all of us are raised either consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously to be great communicators and to be persuasive and influential. And we do that as a, a hope to sell our ideas, to sell ourselves to other people. And I think, you know, the more persuasive a communicator you are, there is success correlated to that. Look at you and your wife. You're extraordinarily adept at all the ways in which you communicate with your tribes, which your apostles, which your family, your kids. Except for communication is more than just speaking, right? I mean, it's this whole other idea that we hear so much lip service to, but it's about listening. And it seems, you know, on the surface level to be, yeah, okay, I'll just listen better. No, I mean, most of us are deeply ingrained and enculturated to always be in verbal communication role because we're impatient, because our attention spans are low. I mean, all of us have some kind of attention deficit now. I'm not even sure that ADD or ADHD diagnosis is even accurate most of the times. Everyone has some kind of attention deficit. So my, my advice to you is as it is becoming more difficult to focus, and let me tell you, whether you are employed or you are full-time stay-at-home parent or you are unemployed, choice is going to become your most lethal weapon in life. High-value decision-makings. Do, do I do this? Do I do that? Do I say this? Do I say that? And as choice becomes a bigger challenge in our lives, right? there's not going to be less Netflix programming next month than there is this month. You're not going to get less email. The distractions are exponentially higher coming your way. So you've got to be adept at making good choices with your time and how to make high-value decisions. How does that relate to, to listening? Because when you're in a conversation with someone, you are increasingly distracted by the second. I don't know about you, Dave, but I, when I'm standing in front of you, after about four or five seconds, I'm thinking about the dry cleaning, my flight, have I checked in? When is the American Express bill due? Is my mortgage paid? What day is the parent-teacher conference? Oh yeah, are the in-laws coming for Easter? Or are we going up there? And who's paying for that? And do I have enough miles to, you get the point, right? I mean, in conversation, we're always tempted 
salaciously to be distracted. So the first thing is when you're listening to someone, you may have to biologically, chemically, neurologically check back in to them every couple of seconds. That's okay. It's actually coming quite normal to be just tempted to be distracted. Second, once you've made that sort of physical decision to stay focused on what they're saying, I want your listeners to be very careful about avoiding this idea of the autobiographical response because most of us listen with the intent to respond, not to understand. Yeah. And, th- and that comes from a good place, right? Because we want to help people solve their problem. I've dated her. I've been married to him. I've worked there. I've shopped there, right? And we're trying to help you solve whatever your problem is. It comes from a good place, but you know what? Most people don't want you to solve their problem, especially your wife and rarely your husband. They just want to be heard, listened to, and validated that their feelings aren't irrational. So my advice to people, as you talk about this, and I could riff a long time on this, is to really check what your intent is. Is your intent to solve their problem? Is your intent to respond from your own frame of reference your own version of that experience, your own mindset. Most of us are usually listening with the intent to respond based on our own timeline, our own agenda, our own need to move it along. In fact, most of us are quite uncomfortable with silence in conversation. You know what's interesting? I, 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 in Rachel and I spending some time over the holiday talking about just everything, We've gotten way more comfortable with difficult conversations. Let's talk about that next. But uh, in in our deciding to wade more actively and often into hard conversations as a byproduct of wanting to still make out, even though we work together every single day, the dis- the discipline that I have attempted to introduce to not responding right away to things when she... I can tell she just wants to get it off her chest. She just wants to have someone that listens. The difference in me actually like leaving space of silence to let something that she's just said sit in the room actually was not just uncomfortable for me. I mean, like I was actively like, bite your tongue. Don't you say a word. Just sit here. But it became uncomfortable for her because she had become so accustomed to me jumping into a conversation. It was like... Did I say something wrong? What like what's going on? I was like, nope. I just wanna I just wanna process what you've said. You know, and I was like, here it is. I'm like attempting to represent my interest in hearing it. But it was, if it's not something that you've been in the practice of, it'll be a little disarming for you to become comfortable with that space that you might leave for that thing to sit. And that's, by the way, okay. It's like less uncomfortable now than it was at the beginning because now we've just gotten used to actually trying to take a little bit of a beat before someone tries to, usually me, jump in and make a recommendation on how she can fix it. She's not usually looking for me to fix anything. She's looking for me to understand what she's going through so that she has a partner in her processing it, not someone who can be complicit in solving it because... One, she's usually able to solve it herself, and two, isn't actually actively looking for someone to give her an answer anyway. Dave, let me commend you because what you just said proves that you're ha- you're needing you're accomplishing this hard task of unlearning skills that you were paid to perfect as a leader in a Fortune 500 company. You were paid to peel the onion. You were paid to get to the root cause. You were paid to jump in and solve things, right? This was what you did for the better part of 20 plus years. Now you're having to unlearn some of those skills that are not effective in interpersonal relationships. This idea that you you mentioned about putting a pause between the stimulus, what someone is saying to you, and your response, your urge, your need to solve it, to clarify it. I think that is one of the most, next to just good listening skills, one of the most important ways to help validate someone's worth and potential in your relationship is to put some pause, take a breath, close your lips, be comfortable with the silence. Put a pause between the stimulus and response. It, it, it is, it's hard to do, especially when you're in the hard charging, you know, world of, of commerce and, and your job, then you come home and, oh, well, oh, I see 
you don't need me to solve your problem because I just spent the last 12 hours solving problems. You just need me to listen and not even respond, perhaps. It's counterintuitive to most of us, regardless of gender. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, too, is like even just creating the space for the silence. What I what I have come to appreciate in not a very long period of time is my quick response. What do I think she needs to hear or how can I fix this immediately? Jumping into it before it had that moment to breathe didn't actually afford me the kind of time to give yeah. thought to how she might receive the response, how how the way that I was recommending something might undermine the thing I was hoping for. Like I'm, I'm looking to alleviate pain or I'm looking to remedy something that feels today like it's causing her a block. And what she needs is, ah, oh, I'm sorry to hear that you're going through this, but you know I'm gonna be here with you. Like all she wants truly in that moment is solidarity instead of solution and the ability to just have that extra moment to think before you speak, hey, what does she need? Ah, I'll give her something that she actually needs instead of something she doesn't want is a has been a game changer. You should open up a coaching practice. Oh yeah. Hey, I'm here for it, man. I'll coach all day long. I am I am here for coaching. Um the 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 one thing that we as a couple were in part just because of I think some of our codependent wiring interest in keeping the other person happy not wanting to like bring things up that could potentially shift mood we did not address tough stuff until stuff until tough stuff tipped past like small things the you know thresholds and all of a sudden it was big stuff and the decision that we made in working together forced us to think differently about the idea of leading difficult conversations between the two of us, right? And so we, whether it's call it radical candor with Kim Scott kind of teaching or the way that you've described leading difficult conversations here, like we just had to embrace that if we are interested in keeping things from turning into something that actually slows down what we're trying to achieve in our relationship or slows down what we're trying to achieve in this professional setting, we have to address it when it's small, even if it's hard. And man, it was because of a lot of muscle memory, hard for us to do that at the beginning, but now it's just become a little more routine. What is it about, I mean, there's so many things, like what is it about our wiring that makes it hard for us to have hard conversations, but why is it as important as I know it is for us to build the skill of leading difficult conversations? Yeah, I've got a couple of thoughts on this, right? I mean, whenever I'm role-playing a high-courage conversation I might need to have with an associate, and perhaps I go to the CHRO, he will always say to me, well, you look really angry. I'm not angry, I'm passionate. But you look angry, Scott. But I'm not, I'm passionate. And he'll say, but you look angry. And my wife will always say to me, why are you so mad? I'm like, I'm not mad at all. I'm just passionate about this. So I think your idea of detaching some of the emotion allows for the meaning to get through, not clouded by our body language or the tone of our voice, or in my case, I'm a loud talker. So when I get passionate about something, I start to raise my voice and she thinks I'm screaming. I'm like, I'm not screaming. You're in the same room as I am. She's like, you're screaming. Listen to yourself. Let me tell you what my, my thoughts are around leading difficult conversations. I read a longitudinal study recently about satisfaction in marriage, Dave. And it said, contrary to a lot of people's thoughts, that one of the key contributors to having, quote, a satisfied marriage is this idea of having great communication, which I thought to be very validating. He said that's actually not the highest correlation between um, satisfaction and marriage. It's the perception that your spouse views you as being a nice person. Does your wife or your partner, your husband, or whoever in your relationship with view you to be nice? Are you kind? And I thought, wow, wow. that's that's that, that kind of rocked my world because I always – prided myself in sort of, you know, wrestling a conversation to the ground and then stomping it dry and getting to the <laughs> end of it. And then, you know what, let's hug and have a beer. My wife's like, I don't want to hug you or have a beer. Get away from me. I had just spent an hour arguing with you because you had to finish it off. So I've always felt like it's so important to wrestle everything to the ground because I want to be known as a good communicator. Well, the problem is I'm a great communicator. Perhaps I'm not, but my wife sometimes thinks I'm not nice. So I really had to make sure that when I have these high courage conversations, that I balance courage, which I've got in spades, with consideration, which I lack tremendously. 
We might call yeah. it we might call it diplomacy. So I think as you're as everybody is looking at difficult conversations that you've avoided. Here's a couple of tips. One, declare your intent. The next time that you're entering a conversation with anybody in your life, use the words up front. Hey, Dave, my intent is to come to like a, an agreement that we both can feel satisfied on how your tree can continue to blossom and provide you all the fruit that you want while still not dropping all this stuff on my new car that I just bought last week that I have to park outside because we only have a one car garage. Is there any way we could do that? My intent is to make sure we both get what we want. If you declare your intent up front in most of these difficult conversations, then people aren't guessing. They're not, they're not a subscribing intent to you because, you know, absent facts, people make stuff up. So make sure that when you're entering conversations that might be really outside your comfort zone, balance courage and consideration, declare your intent, and make sure that you're, you're listening as much, if not more, than you're talking to understand what does the other person need out of me, not just what do I need out of them. I love it. I mean, I have I have said a hundred times and I have told any team that I've ever managed that the only time people get upset is when they are surprised by something. Said another way, if you haven't managed the expectation of a stakeholder in your life, be it your partner, your boss, your kids, whatever it might be, and they are surprised by an outcome that they haven't been front loaded for, they will be upset. And so every conflict, like every time that there has been conflict, it's because of this expectations thing. I could not agree more. And I, d I definitely want to give credit to you and this conversation around de the declaration of intent, because the ability for Rachel and I to work through hard conversations by starting each of them with the words, my intent here is, it is an immediate, just it pulls so much of the emotion out of it because in the absence of the declaration, your mind goes to crazyville. Your mind goes to a place that is like triggered by fourth grade insecurity, that because of some way that your mom used to do this or because of the way that you were teased in middle school about that, there's this fear-based insecurity thing that happens in the absence of complete clarity around the intention. And I just, man, it has been an awesome tool and I give you credit for it because we started really using it after we saw, saw you here at the office. You know, I, I really appreciate that. Thanks, Dave. Of course, that comes from my learnings from the Franklin Covey Company. All of us have agendas. You do, your wife does, your mother-in-law does, your minister does. Everybody's got an agenda. And all of us have hidden agendas. Some of them are closer to the surface than others. But when you really sit down and ask yourself, okay, so what's my agenda? Because all, agenda, all your agendas aren't pure. All my agendas aren't pure. You have some motives that are self-serving. I have some motives that are self-serving. And the more we can address those and just be vulnerable enough to admit those, then we can be less um, obfuscating, if you will, less cloudy around what our intent is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I mean, there's, there's a, one of the challenges is about making it safe to tell the truth. Like if there was a thing in this that comes as a prerequisite, it's that you are going to afford this person to be honest in this hard conversation in a way that isn't going to penalize them for their honesty. And that also is a muscle that requires some work to become comfortable with because we've all got baggage in certain things. We've all got triggers from certain things. And if truly you're interested in a relationship that's exceptional, it has to be built on a trust that says you are afforded an opportunity to represent a point of view here with the de that declaration of what your intent is if that like truth 
is is truly a thing that is bothering you, that is leaving you with like misaligned expectations to reality, then I think we have to, as a partner, find a way to hear that as their truth without it necessarily being an immediate indictment on us not being good people, as it not being an immediate indictment on us not being like whole, whole or good for the relationship. But um, I don't know, like I've been through seasons in our relationship where I said, yeah, just tell me what's on your mind. Go ahead, just tell me. And it was like a trap. She'd step right into it. And then I'd tell all the reasons why her reality was not real or wrong because it was emotionally something that made me feel insecure, right? Does that resonate? Oh, man, Dave, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Susan David on Franklin Covey's podcast. She wrote this book called Emotional Agility. Phenomenal book, Emotional Agility. She's a South African medical doctor at the Harvard Medical School. And the big idea that I took away from this, which has had an enormous impact on every aspect of my life, and it's so simple, and it's this idea that everyone has emotions and opinions, and we often confuse them with facts. Your emotions and your opinions are just that, your emotions and your opinions, and facts are facts, and both are fine to have, but in every aspect of our life, professional and personal, we have to have a pretty good governor to understand. So is that how I'm feeling or is that how I'm a fact? Is that what she said or that's what I think she's going to say when I get home and hit her with this news? I don't know about you, Dave, but I'm a master at role-playing the conversation before it happens. Right? Oh, yeah. Driving to the office with my CEO, like meeting with him or driving home to meet my wife and I will in the car – have the entire argument out loud in the car. I'll take her side. I'll take my side. And before I know it, I've argued the whole thing out and I get home and I'm ready for the, the real argument when she hasn't even had a fair chance yet. Right. I've, I've already role played what I think her side is going to be because I'm so caught up in my own emotions and my opinions. Some of them grounded in experience. Mostly they're just grounded in defensibility, right? Fear. And insecurity and <laughs> yeah. fear. Yeah. I've even given her a chance to sit down and listen to me. I, I have become much more deliberate around not role-playing the conversation because like you, it was a pretty good skill in business, right? Because I'd always wanted to be prepared. I wanted to make sure I had thought through every possible contingency plan and any argument they might bring against me, I'd already thought through. It's actually a pretty good skill in the office, it's a horrible skill in relationships inside or outside the office. Yeah. So let's we're we're running shorter on time. I think we could talk honestly for the next four hours, but I want to finish with this one because uh, inevitably there are outside forces that are going to affect the the chance for you to feel like you can maintain your positive outlook, your composure, your, you know, anything that is good and whole, that life is going to come around the corner. And it might be that your partner's had a bad day. It might be that your kids are your kids. But I love this challenge, the challenge to carry your own weather. And th this, this idea that, like, no matter what else is happening, no matter who else's opinion, no matter what, like the idea that you are going to decide on the the weather that you'll carry is a it's a game changer if you can embrace it as a way of life. You know, Dave, I am in Miami right now at my publishers. I'm getting ready to write a couple of more books in the Mess of Success series and some things for Franklin Covey. And uh, as you know, I live in Salt Lake City, a fairly calm city. And uh, Miami's much more intense, right? A lot of spirit down here and much more um, diversity. There was a car accident. No one was injured. A car turned left, hit a car that was turning right or whatever that combination was. And there was a young lady she was in her probably early 20s, just going, you know, bat, you know, what crazy on the sidewalk. I don't know if she was the hitter or the hitty, but she was like singing an opera of anger and vitriol and frustration. And my nine-year-old son was with me, just captivated, watching this lady just like lose her cookies. We went and got a drink and some fried chicken. 
came back 20 minutes later and she was just as animated screaming at the police officers and the person that she'd hit or hit her. And I thought, wow, I mean, I don't claim to know what's going on in her life. Maybe it was her only car. Maybe she didn't have insurance. I don't know what her problem was, but just completely devoid of any kind of control of her emotions. We've all lost our cookies occasionally in life, right? Hopefully not too much past our 20s because we realize that's quite useless. But this idea of carrying your own weather is just that, is that you become so grounded in who you are, what you believe, what you stand for, that nobody can hijack your metaphorical weather. Whether they hit your car, cut you off in traffic, don't say hi to you as they walk past you in the morning to the cafeteria, well, whatever the circumstance is. Now, as Dr. Covey would say, you know, says easy, does hard, right? How do you really never give your emotional metaphorical weather over to someone else? I think it's the people that have clarity on their values. Yeah. And again, that might be a bit cliche-ish, but I'd invite all your listeners to get real. What is it you value? Go write it down, make a list, scratch it out, prioritize it, re-rank it, and then commit it to memory. Get really clear and don't create your values based on what you think will look good on a list or what will look nice on your Instagram. Don't even tell anybody your values. Just live your life. Let the words that you speak, let your actions, your behaviors, your responses reflect what your values are. I, I know I was single till I was 41, Dave. So this idea of a personal mission statement never really resonated with me, right? If you would ask me what my mission is in my 30s, I don't know, go to Italy more often, snow ski more often, I don't know, drink more champagne. I mean, I still am not sure I know what my mission is in life, but I can tell you my several, my seven values, frontwards and backwards, and I live my life in strict accordance with my values, and even you can violate them, but you still will not hijack my emotional weather because I am going to live in accordance with my seven values. So good. My drop on that, everyone, please know your values and then declare your own weather and carry it with you regardless of how someone tries to infiltrate your system. Goodness gracious. Scott Miller, Scott Jeffrey Miller, if we're getting serious <laughs> about it. Thanks for coming on the show today, man. I super appreciate it. If uh, a listener here is interested in understanding anything more that you have created, where the heck do they find you on the interwebs? Well, thank you so much. You can find me on LinkedIn and Instagram and um, Facebook. I'd love to have people following me. I'd uh, love to have you subscribe to our podcast. I, I, I've been at the Rise event. Hope to get invited back sometime. Any association with the Hollis family makes me better as well. So thank you for inviting me into your world. Right on. If you listened to this and found value in it, would you please take a picture of this podcast and tag both Scott and I? Let us know what you thought of the episode. If you found value in it, would you share it with a friend? Tell them you need to listen to this episode because Scott's dropping mad knowledge. Uh, if you really enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast and give Scott's a look, too. He's got a fantastic one that Rachel has been a guest on, and I will be a guest on here in a second. So I am excited for that. Uh, but also subscribe to this.